You're listening to the Sound Source Podcast with Alex Knickerbocker. All right, today we are talking to Bill Meadows, who is the recordist and or mix tech for one of the largest feature film stages in not just Los Angeles, but the world. And he's in a really unique position to see basically everything you possibly could from a post-production sound perspective, every problem, every solution, every facet of the process. So, uh... Thanks for coming down. My pleasure. Hanging out. Yeah, of course. Uh, what, I guess, would you describe is the job title, job description that you do on a daily basis? Well, it's it's morphed over the years, of course. It started, when I started out in 19, well, I started out in the sound industry in 1991, three months out of high school. I was 18 years old. I started out the best way possible at the time, which was taking food to the stages and physically cleaning film. Not a good time, but hey. You know, it's a job. It was. It's a job. It was just as hard to get in then as it is now. Certainly, I've heard it's competitive. I've heard the same. Oddly, <laughs> I did that the kind of schleppy work for a couple of years, and then I was fortunate enough to fall backwards onto working on an analog mix stage, loading thirty-five millimeter film. I was one of three guys in the room at the time. And there was a, a stage recordist who handled all the patching, all the recording, and then there was two loaders. Sure. At that point, you know, we're, we're loading 40, you know, analog, 35 millimeter. They were RCAs to get really hyper-specific. <laughs> um, you know, uh, film playback mag machines. Sure. So you needed an army of guys because you needed to do it fast. And fast then was, you know, 45 minutes long. And I wow. Guess, yeah, that was fast. You know, you, you, you got into things that people will never need to do again. You know, tweaking out azimuths on heads, you know, flattening EQ curves across, you know, six channel, you know, analog playback heads. Right. We'll never do that again. Thanks. Well, God. <laughs> Don't make it sound so appealing. Oh, it was horrible. Well, My it's, hands are cut to hell <laughs> all the time. It's interesting because a lot of the principles of how that process went, the workflow behind dealing with analog tape, mm -hmm. has translated directly into the digital post-production world. 100%. But we've kind of lived in that ecosystem for so long that nobody really sees that anymore. It's all the nomenclatures, they're ridiculously identical. The concepts are ridiculously identical. It's just, yeah, now you're not setting bias. You're, you, you don't have to worry about EQing out a machine, but you know, this, the same parameters, the same basic concepts mm -hmm. all apply. It's, it's all still setting up a stereo at the end of the day. You're coming out of something to go into something, going into something so you can come out of it. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a physical patch cord like we were dealing with at the time. You know, oh, we're coming out of this machine. We're going to this this Dolby SR noise reduction card. We're coming out of that card. We're going, and from there, we're going directly to a fader. Now it's all just routed in Pro Tools. But the same basic concepts of what I learned when I first went into um, on the stages in early 94, if I remember correctly. I feel like it's actually a really great thing that all those same skill sets and tenets from, you know, 30 years ago still apply today in many different ways. It's just, again, the, the I guess, the conceptual stuff, the ideas of where it all came from, because we live in such a digital world at this point. A lot of people don't even know that that's where it all comes from. Yeah, it, it, it's, re it's remarkable to me as well having you know, come from that, you know, and I'm, um, you know, to come from that era mm -hmm. and, you know, and obviously I learned from guys who came from even more archa archaic equipment before me. I mean, I, I feel fortunate that I have touched what I would almost consider every facet of sound possible over mm -hmm. my career. And that, you know, in that first three year period, I was, I was kind of working for a guy who did optical recording. So I was able to do what literally 
was the first form of processing sound for movies. So when it comes to, I guess, making the jump from that world into what we now know of as the Pro Tools digital world, you know, Pro Tools is obviously the really the only solution that we have available to us. Realistically speaking, yes, it is. Which is scary. Terrifying. That's, you know, you talk about not having your eggs in one basket, and this is... This is the only basket that's out there to have your eggs in. Yes. It's not like there are many choices. Is that something that you're seeing kind of as a problem coming up in the future? Are you concerned with? It is a little terrifying to think that, oh, here's 99% of post-production sound for theater and television being ruled by essentially one company. That's a little, it's, it's disconcerting. It's just like, you know, if only Ford made cars, you know, you're, you're only, and you're only beholden to that, right. you know, there, it, it takes a lot of the, the competition out of the equation. They've been fantastic. There, there are things that Avid does that is, that have been great. Sure. There are things that they don't know because they are not a console company that's been in business for 50 years. <laughs> Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Pardon me. I don't want to say we're teaching them, but a lot of the guys I work with, you know, they they beat the avid guys up on like, look, this is what we are accustomed to. This isn't something we like. This is something we've been doing. Right. It's effective. It's fast. Mm-hmm. It's convenient. That's what we need. It may we, not be right, but it is what works. I wouldn't even say it's a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of a programmer not knowing what they don't know. Which is, you know, a, a phrase we use all the time. All the time, and it's not a—it's not even a dig. It's like there's always something that we, as individuals, you know, don't know what we don't know. Sure. And we're hoping to educate them, and and we're hoping that they, in turn, will educate us on their their thought process behind why they did or didn't do this. And I understand that there's simply there's things they the processing challenges right. that they they are trying to overcome and that's a big part of why we can't have x and y but so they did it as you know f and g sure with that sort of uh back and forth i guess you've been working again at the the major you know some of the highest grossing films of all time have come through your hands mm-hmm. and you've seen all of the problems and their solutions that go along with handling post-production sound from things that are relatively straightforward on the you know sort of smaller independent level for fun that sort of thing that are maybe dealing with a single pro tools system mm-hmm. and have maybe you know 200 tracks going and it's relatively small versus you know, some major theatrical multi-million dollar, multi-hundred million dollar motion picture mm-hmm. that's across 10 Pro Tools systems running 300 tracks apiece and having a crew of 15 people on a stage all working at once yes. against deadlines of weeks, days. Yeah, weeks, days, months. <laughs> you know, it all boils down to hours at a certain point. Absolutely. Uh, as as we've discussed over and over again and in, in our relationship, the uh, I enjoy the uh, mixers that you've been working with for some time now. <laughs> Ta- constantly talking about how no matter what level, no matter what budget, no matter what content, no matter what director, no matter what anything, mm-hmm. crew challenges, etc. It's only ever finished because it has to be. We never finish. We only stop. Yep. Or it gets taken away, depending on <laughs> depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, but we never finish. That's 
an interesting, I think there's this sort of chasing after that perfection that people who are maybe just getting started think that they have to do, mm. or people who are really, really particular about their vision, they get so attached to something that it has to be this thing, and until it's that thing, we have to just keep going. Well, it's also, it's like, and the, the, the big problem is, and you were heading that direction, you're working, this is called massive collaborative effort. You've got between, on a larger, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything, but, you know, 200 plus million dollar movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not surprising. There's a few people working on those, you know, because of the challenges, the concerns, the deadlines, what have you. Sure. We can all kind of fill in those blanks. But now you've got that many more people with that many more personal opinions, with that many more things that affect, you know, their taste. Right. And it's not even a matter of right or wrong. It's 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 all so subjective. But now you're trying to balance all that subjectivity amongst, you know, whomever is in charge right now. Right. Or, <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> at this moment. Who you know, who is the you know, the, one of the jokes from one of our guys has been, you know, we defer to the deafest guy in the room. That's another, you know, kind of, you know, kind of slice of that little sure. sarcasm pie. But yeah, it's like something that bugs me may not bug you. You know, something that's like one of those, I have had a lifetime of like, oh God, I cannot handle, you know, the handshake release, you know, fully. Like, oh, nobody does that. Right. It drives me batshit. <laughs> but at the same time, and it wasn't until another friend of mine drew my attention to it, of course, I was just like, oh, you're right. And now I can't ever not see it, hear it, however you want to look at it. Sure. But to the other 95% of the people in the room, they're not even thinking about that. They're focused on something that I don't give two, two craps about. I guess it's not an issue for me. It's just one of those things that takes me out of it because so many people have mentioned it as a definition of like good fully. Mm-hmm. Cigarette inhales. Oh, the, the little ashes burn. burning, the little crispy. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, every single cigarette that is ever inhaled from in a major motion picture or really in any, you know, any film that's trying to do something, any broadcast TV show that's mm-hmm. trying to be that level of professional. It's always there. It's always there. And every single time I'm like, yeah, yep, this is, yes, I hear it. I get it. Somebody had to do this on a stage somewhere else, <laughs> just like they had to do every other time. And for whatever reason, that's what gets yeah. me. And I, I have no solution to that. It's just one of those things that once again, when you've got a room full of people, you've got a room full, you got a director, a producer, picture editor, mm-hmm. you know, sound editorial supervisor, all the mixers. Now you're balancing all those incremental little, often pointless personal preferences. You know, and it's 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 a knife, it's a razor's edge. Right. You know, it's like there's already enough problems, and now you've got to deal with these inconsequential, <laughs> you know, personal preference things, sure. which. If you're working Monday through Friday and you're doing a normal day, eh, they're just kind of like, okay, yeah, dude, whatever. And you just handle it. But then you get into, oh, I've been working for the last six weeks straight. I've been working 100 plus hours a week. I've been here since 8 a.m. two days ago. You know, or, you know, that that's only happened a handful of times, but it has happened. Right. And that's when those little knife edge, razor's edge, personal preference, foibly things that make no difference somehow catch fire interesting and they become a massive problem <laughs> and you go down weird rabbit holes because of that because hey man everybody loses context after they've been up for 27 hours i guess picture editors come to mind specifically and and directors who are in the room in the cutting room for mm-hmm. so long you know they spend three months six months finessing all these little details of their baby correct 
And so all of the nuances, all the little tiny ticks and and maybe subtle annoyances that for most audiences, it's going to go by and they're not even going to notice that it happened, mm-hmm. let alone that it was even there in the, the production process. They become, you know, oh, my God, we have to solve these right now. We can't. The film can't be released like this. A lot of people, you know, I, and I get it. I've done it as well in my life as well as at work. It's sure. They forget that that minutiae. It's going to blow right past most people. It's it's the first time viewer concept. To your point, this guy's been living with cut X for six months. He's been living with this bad visual effect. This or the I wouldn't say bad. This visual effect that never got where he hoped it would get. So we run into that a lot. Where oh, there, I know this visual effect is not great. I know this shot is not great. We're going to fix it with sounds. Like no, <laughs> that that doesn't work that way. But now we have to make it work that way, or at least we have to give the perception right. of making it work that way. And those are you know you go down a lot of rabbit holes because of that. You're you're paying for the sins of somebody else. Right. With things that go in that direction and how they eventually become the responsibility on the dub stage mm-hmm. to somehow solve with tools that maybe don't even apply. You know, there's there's a lot of time that gets spent on those things. There's a lot of other issues that detract from being able to do the creative process. And especially, again, working in Pro Tools where you'd think by now everybody would have all their stuff figured out so that it's a seamless, you know, workflow. But it seems to have only gotten less organized and more chaotic as time has gone on. I think the simplest answer to that is yes, but the and, but the rationale behind it is because we get less time. You know, the, to, you were talking earlier about track counts. Track counts have gone up because we're no longer stuck on a you know I don't want to call it an analog console, but a, a traditional console where it's like here's channel one, there's channel one, here's channel two, there's channel two. It's a, you know one to one thing. Now we're we're mixing in the box. So you can have 500 channels that's coming out eight, seven, one buses. Right. You know, and it's all virtual. So it's just that much more stuff. The, the, the soundtracks get that much more detailed every year, which just means more and more and more and more. I feel like this is where decisiveness becomes the most important thing in the workflow. 100%. And we've lost that to an extent because we don't have to be decisive any longer. It used to be you have X amount of tracks you can bring to the stage. We have 36 track heads. That's it. Right. You know, then it was, okay, now we've got a couple of two-inch machines. But still, that's it. And even going into the initial, you know, digital, you know, revolution in the mid '90s when we were using the the Tascam MMP16s, it's right there in the title, man. You still only have 16 <laughs> channels, and you only I, now I can't remember how many of those we had to play back off of, but it was still it was a it was a finite number. Right. It was a finite amount of faders. There was a finite amount of playback, and now that's kind of been chucked, and. It's good in some ways, and it's horrible in others. And that, yeah, a lot of people don't make decisions. They don't just okay, this is what I'm bringing. Right. This is what you get. Like, no, oh, we've got this. We got A, B, C, D, E, and F options for you for this this punch. You know, this we've got five versions of this punch that is also made up of twenty components each for each, you know, option. And as you, and then you get into, oh, well, I want a little bit of that, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. And, of course, right. everything grinds to a halt. Right. I like all five punches. Let's get them all There's, featuring certain elements. That often happens as well. I mean, I'm being I'm, – I'm blowing it a little out of proportion. Honestly, oh, not that much, little. though. And that's, I think that's sort of a, 
again, little known complexity that somebody who's cutting against picture in an Avid or in a Premiere rig somewhere, you know, they're going to be layering things together. A lot of the problems that I see are people who want something to be big. And in order to get it to be big, they decide to layer 17 different elements that are all the same mm-hmm. on top of each other. And it phases and it causes all, you know, it distorts buses and it, it makes everything just unlistenable. It's not big. It's just loud. So with those sorts of things in mind, what are some of the, I guess, more specific, if you can get specific, what are some of the crazier problems that you've run into in the many years of? Oh, I mean, the, the biggest problems we run into in that regard is is more, it's usually visual effects based. Mm. It's just like, okay, we... We, we went through the premix process and we hopefully got the 20 punches settled on. Hopefully we got to that point before the filmmakers even on the stage. We've got the general theme of, of those key elements done. It's never 100%. You're always going to be sweetening the, you know, the more key moments. It's like, oh, you know, oh, I want the, I know that punch is huge and that's great. And this, this is actually a little bit of a true story. I want the Indiana Jones punch in there that, you know, wah, wah, you know, that Ben Burt totally over the top, mm-hmm. you know, 80s punch. I want that element in there. I know that, you know, every other punch is like this, but I want this hero punch. And that's the element I want. So everybody, of course, their first thought is, oh, no, he wants it in that, that, that vibe, that theme. Right. So they kind of take some Recreate. stuff and they make it nice and they go along the lines. The filmmaker comes back. It's like, no, I told you guys what I wanted. I want the Indiana Jones punch. And eventually, we got to make some phone calls to Ben Burke. And, and, and that's kind of the way it ended up. It ended up all, I don't want to say it was a straight lift because that's not what it was, but it was essentially the Indiana, it was as best of a mimicry of that Indiana, that, that punch we all know. Right. You know? Whoops. Yeah, exactly. There's a whip and there's like that. Yeah. I, it's, it's impossible to describe, but everyone knows everyone what it knows sounds it. like. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, wow. It's like, well, we tried to do something original and unique. But that's not always what people want. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's part of what we deal with all day is just trying to mind read. Right. Or back to the visual, the, the biggest issue being visual effects. It's like, oh, where all you get a new version of picture and there's a gun battle going on. And suddenly there's all these impacts. It's like, where the hell did those come from? <laughs> those and weren't I, in the previous version. Those weren't in the, the, those previous, weren't in the previous 15 versions. <laughs> we've we've been on, on certain projects where we're mastering and like, oh, we got a final visual effect shot in. It's like, we're done mixing. We're in deep in the mastering process. And suddenly full frame, we've got bullet impacts are always the worst. They're the easiest. They're the easiest one to pick on because they're they're the most common problem. Sure. And like, next thing you know, full frame, beep, 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 you know, like, uh, <laughs> the film's done. Wait a minute. Done. And, and, and at that point, we're making phone calls. It's like, are we going back into mix mode and putting these in? Because they have to be cut. They've got to be mixed. They've got to be approved. Right. Which is the big part that everybody forgets. We don't just slam stuff in. Now we got to bring the filmmaker back who's been maybe gone for a week at this point to say, oh, do you like this? this every, everything is approved. Right. And if the answer is No. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a slowdown at a point in the process where there is there was no time three days ago. Right. And on this particular, the last particular instance I'm talking about, we basically made the call and said, "Do you want them? Because if you know the, the, this is what we got to do. Uh, oh no, we'll roll the shot back to the earlier version. There, they'll be gone. 
that very rarely happens, and it only has happened when we're at a point where we simply cannot. Right. We don't, not can't. We won't be able to meet this other department's deadlines for international delivery if we do. Certainly. If we go back into full mix mode. You know, oh, it's only it's only five impacts. It's like, it could be one. If you want it in there, the process is still the same. We still got to roll. We got to go backwards, man. Yeah. And again, this is not in simpler and I guess not necessarily lower budget stuff because the, the complexity can still be there. But in simpler projects, <laughs> that can be as easy as, oh, well, we've got to open up a previous version of a Pro Tools session and mess around. But on a stage where you have, again, what, 10 systems, 14 systems running in conjunction with each other? Typically, n nowadays, we've got, as from a, from a playback standpoint, we're running, and I say we're only running like four, but those four Gigantosaurus, you know, you know, rigs. But the, the other part, the other component that everybody tends to forget about from a theatrical standpoint is we're running multiple recorders. Right. You know, especially in, in, in the new immersive sound format. Well, I think this is this is actually a good thing to touch on because a lot of filmmakers and people, I mean, whether they're interested in sound or not, they don't even know that recorders exist in this way. So given the, the official title of what your role started as, I guess I'll say it started as, yeah. was recordist. Yes. What was, what did that mean? What has that evolved into? And, you know, how, how does this sort of fit into the workflow? I like it. Well, recordist, very simply put, we, as I was talking about earlier, I was the third guy in a mag machine room. All I did was literally was take film out of a box, put it on the machine, thread it up, make sure the EQ was flat, the level was flat, and it was going through the noise reduction. You know, be it, I did do a little Dolby A at, uh, at the beginning of my career, but it was mostly Dolby SR cards, and you make sure they were all set, and that was our noise reduction. Get rid of that tape -ist. So you were originally working with mag tape, mag tape laying all of these sounds that were cut and then mixed through uh, you know, a Harrison console, for example, mm -hmm. back to a recorded medium. Yes, we it 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 our in our most highly you know evolved point. We were running four six track Magnatech mag recorders. Twenty four tracks. What are you going to do with all that space? Sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I miss. It's like here is my whatever show real one dialogue stem. This is it. This is the master in the most literal sense. That's what I mean. when when somebody tells me now it's a master. <laughs> yes, you don't know what a master is. You know, I used to hold a master in my hands and like, okay, we've got a picture change. Here's the master. I'm handing you the only version of this. Yeah, the golden standard. Everything yeah. from here forth will be derived from this. Precisely. And then when I got it back, that was still the master, and it was great. You know, there was never any doubt about what you had in your hands, what you were playing back. Right. That being said, it was also terrifying. Sure. You know, now I can have 14, you know, exact copies of a, of a, of a file, which it turns into his own other little nightmare, but yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm running, it was typically, it was, uh, like I said, we were working in 5.1 at that point in time. Mm -hmm. we, we were into 5.1. So we had a music stem, a 5.1 music stem, a 5.1 dialogue stem, 5.1 hard effects stem, and then we kind of had a the effects mixer would typically have a 5.1 ads stem because at that point in time they were the ones getting most of the ads flown in. Sure. So they wanted this, you know, especially at the at the when the when the digital workstations were just coming onto the stage and they had like eight channels of output, and at that point they would feed directly into the console mm -hmm. and 
mixer, you know, effects mixer A would lay it down to this this second stem, this magical second stem he had, so the guy could go offline and keep cutting. Right. And that's what it is. It's like, okay, real one, you know, put up these four recorders, real two, put up these four recorders. That's the that's interesting, especially because the real workflow is still very much a thing. It's very it's very much a thing. It's it's as as one of my, my friend Frank puts it, it's a tail pop God damn, I'm gonna misquote him. A tailpot breeds morale because it's like <laughs> it feels like you've completed something and you can't work for a variety of reasons. You can't work in you know a two and a half hour movie. You can't put up a two and a half hour load of everything. As soon as there's a conform, a fix, you've got everything up. You, it's impossible simply because there's more information at once. And you've just ground everybody to a screeching ass halt. Yes. You've taken any forward momentum that anybody had, be it the stage or editorial even, and you've stopped it. And, you know, a big point of what we do is we just, the wheels never stop turning. It's a very expensive process. Yes. Yeah, the stages are expensive. The the They're not armies like they used to be of personnel, but there's still a fair amount of personnel involved. Yeah. And any time that they all sit there twiddling their thumbs... It's money being lost. And I, I hate to think of things, you know, from a financial standpoint, but it is a massive component of what we do. Sure. There's a lot of there's a lot of money at play. Well, there's always that golden triangle of you want something done. Do you want it fast, cheap, or good? Yeah. Pick two. And it's, it's just not an effective use of time. It's it's like anything. You, you had a thought. You're having a conversation. You have a thought. The thought gets interrupted. The whole thing gets blown to hell. And it's no different on a stage. Hmm. You know, you, you have that momentum and when it gets interrupted, it takes a while to get back into the groove of things often. Right. You know, it's That's, like you've, you've just totally taken your mindset from a creative one to, oh, now I've got to go into the, this technical minutia nonsense. And you know, it's a testament to the professionalism and the skill level. A lot of the people I've been fortunate to work with that they can transition pretty quickly, but they're still human beings. Yes. And it can still and badly or not badly it's still it's it's just not efficient so yeah though the real the real or eel concept has never gone away in in theatrical mixing not yet i don't i can't see it ever going away especially once again i hate to beat up on the visual effects people but as the films become more and more and more dependent on visual effects and visual effects are a constantly changing animal it's 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 a it's a moving target Right. And it is the it is the bane of our existence. So what I'm curious, what would you see if there was to be any solution to that problem of constantly having to chase fear? I mean, obviously, this is an ideal world that we've just stepped into and will never be a reality. But what could you see making the process for sound working with and against picture, specifically visual effects, I guess? What would be a happier medium than it is now? Unfortunately, I don't think there's a good answer. And as we get deeper and deeper into, like I said, visual effects being such a massive component, mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, they're, they're taking bags out of people's eyes now. It's not just, oh, it's not just, oh, a visual effect. It's an explosion. It's a spaceship. It's this. It's like, no, it's makeup. Right. It's, it's, um, it's, it's the sky. It's, it's. Something that's sitting over there that the first time I see it, oh, there's the camera truck. Here's this car chase. Oh, here's four camera trucks. Here's the drone going over shooting this thing. It's not always an explosion. A lot of it's just painting out all this stuff that's in constant motion. So it's only becoming, especially on the larger budget action movies, which, you know, that's what I know best. It's becoming more and more of a 
it's oh God, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, 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 it's just such a component that it's never, it's never going to get improved. Right. Because it's, the visual effects are only good. The, the visual effects will improve, and as we we've all seen that over the last several years, it's just man, they get better and better and better. So you watch something five years ago that you thought was, you know, the cat's ass, and now it's just like, this looks like a cutscene from a video game, <laughs> and like not like this. And then five years from now, this thing that was the greatest thing ever is it's going to look like a cutscene from a video game. <laughs> it's going to look like a cartoon your kids watching. Right. It's it's never the time. Like I said, the time will expand, or the work will expand to fill the time allotted. Sure, there is no, there's no. I don't, I don't believe there's a magic bullet. And time, as we have definitely found out, is not the magic bullet. Absolutely, I think this is the only lesson to be learned. In that is, budget your time accordingly to try and get the most value out of it, and try and yeah. make the most important decisions, and recognize which ones are. Not that. Plans are great. I love plans. I really like the sound they make as we blow right past them. <laughs> when was the last time a plan went according to oh, itself? In Paul, the 12th of never. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's, it's so much of what we do is it's flexibility. Yeah. So much of what you have to be prepared for is the things you never even considered because that's what's going to get you. You can't. It's a, I, I've often described my job as being a firefighter. Most of the day, you're sitting there, twiddling your thumbs, you know, doing as much, you know, busy work as you can to be ready for when the emergency strikes. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know when it's going to happen. I can't be prepared. For, therefore, I cannot be prepared for it. All I can do is keep everything clean, yep. <laughs> keep everything laid out, and just be ready. So it's like a lot of my day is very tense, even though there's no tension, there's no overt tension. It's not like there's nobody over my shoulder mm -hmm. where like in my position, I don't have the filmmaker over my shoulder. A lot of times filmmaker doesn't even know what I do. And I am a okay with that. The greatest compliment I ever got from a director was I do not know what you do, but you seem to do it well. <laughs> and that that's fantastic to me. It's like, they're not keeping me around because I'm pretty, because that ain't the case. <laughs> You know, but a lot, so a lot of my day is spent sitting there, you know, like, okay, that's there, that's there, okay, okay, well, that, oh. you know, you're trying to read the tea leaves, you're trying to mm -hmm. predict the future, and sometimes you go all day just being like, wound up like a top, just like, oh, God, this is the worst day ever, when you're and trying to... nothing happens. <laughs> I guess when you're trying to divine what problem the couple of S6s you've got are going to throw at you next in conjunction with the giant analog console, which I imagine is probably more stable. It's ridiculously stable and that it doesn't, it just sits there as a pastor. It's a glorious, it's a glorious router that now there's nothing to break on because it's not used in that context anymore. Right. But, you know, so, but now what's made it worse is like, at least then it's like, oh, you had moving parts. Mm. I think that that's the point of failure. Okay. So I can be ready for this point of failure. Now it's all network-based. You never know anything. There are 14 switches between that console and that machine that it's talking to. There's 300 feet of cable, cable, you know, a fiber optic wire, mm -hmm. wire. You know, it's like there's so many weird jumping jumper points. It's like there's so many computers talking to other computers. It's like you can't see that. There's, It's not like, oh, I see a little smoke over there like it used to be. It's like, oh, God, you know, I can go fix that. Right. Now it's just like you sit there and you twiddle your thumbs and you just wait for whatever network connectivity <laughs> issue to happen because they do. And that's just, that's that's our world now. We're sitting there just waiting for networks to flame out. And it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's where we are. Sure. 
That's the well to have those kinds of technical problems come in place of the previous ones. Yeah, yeah. one problem just got swapped for another. Sure, you know, which means it's okay. Now I need to figure out the fastest way to do this. And as much as I said, it's like, oh, you never know what's going to happen. There are still okay. There's twenty five, or totally arbitrary number, things we see regularly. Mm-hmm. So it's like you get really fast at like, okay, when this does this, that means it's this, this, and this, and then I got to reboot it in this order. That's another big thing. It's just like, oh, it used to be just turn everything off, turn it back on again. It's like, no, now it's got an order. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of times. It's like, and because so many things are talking to one another, it's like, oh, do I want to shut everything down? No. Oh, I think it's the... Like the S6, I don't know how familiar everybody is with the S6, but there's the WS app that is basically its communication controller between Pro Tools and the actual Surface. And that thing has gotten way better. <laughs> That's it's, good. It still has its issues, and it has it has multiple ways it locks up. So it's like you're, okay, when it does, oh, the, this beach ball, and oh, I see, oh, that meter screen's locked up. That's, I can do it this way, and that's the fastest, most effective way, as opposed to, oh, I got to reboot the switch, or I got to reboot the, the, the entire console, or I have to reboot just the application. Right. Or, oh, my God, this is where the whole Pro Tools is locked out. It's never coming back unless I take this particular session down and reboot the CPU. It's, it's, it's a juggling act of, you know, oh, which... Which hot pan combination do I have to grab to make this work again? Yeah. Where, where, how much pain, how can I minimize the pain of this reboot sequence? Right. Because there will never be any oven mitts for this, but. Exactly. This is going to hurt. This is the, you know, when I say hurt, obviously it's, it's like, this is going to take, if I do it this way, I can maybe get this haul back up in like 74 seconds. But if I do it this way, it's going to take like five minutes. If I do it this way, I know it'll work. But I'm going to try the 72nd way first because time is months. But it comes, it comes back to that. You don't want the stage down. Sure. You know, you want to keep keep that train on the tracks. You keep it moving, 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 moving. And that's that's a huge part of my day is, you know, it's, it's these little fires and these really weird combinations of things to put the fire out. Right. You know, like I said, I, I miss the days of just, oh, click. Click. Okay, it's back. <laughs> you know, we're we're so far beyond that with with just all the networking, right? And it's 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 uh, yeah, it's a challenge. And then going back to all of on top of all that, we were starting to talk. We were starting to touch on it is the recorder concept, right? You in these immersive formats, uh, we primarily not primarily we one hundred percent unless it's a smaller documentary are working in Dolby Atmos. Mm-hmm. It's just it won. Yep, it's it's just the way it is. It won, and and that's the other thing. And I should have touched on this earlier. Everything I'm saying is the way my stage works. It's the way we have found to be. That's the way we found to be the most effective for the way my guys want to proceed. Right. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's what works for us. And that's that's the both the it's a double edged sword of digital sound. Right. There are 16 ways to do everything, and they're all right. As long as they get the clients what they need, as long as they exactly. get the- At the end of the day, as long as they have the client walks with what they needed in the in the amount of time they needed you to do it in, it's right. There's anybody who sits you down and goes, you know, if, if you're if you're able to effectively deliver your materials and some other Yahoo comes in and says, You're wrong, like, no, you're not. You're right. He just does it differently. You sure. Know? There's nothing that says there's there's no textbook that says from Avid that says 
you know, do it this way, this way, this way, this way, and anything else you do is incorrect. You know, with, with analog, it was. You kind of had to do it a certain way. There was there was no cutting corners in that regard. Now we have this mass, it's, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. It's this flexibility that can, you can go down some weird rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. You can make things way more complicated than you need to be. Or you can do it the way I like it, which is simplify. You know, my 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 life tenet is if, if I can't figure this out at 3 a.m., it's too complicated. Sure. Because that's often the situation I find myself in. <laughs> so we have we have taken a lot of those older concepts and we've just expanded upon them. I have my A recorder, which is a variety of dialogue and music stems. And I, I don't want to go too into and I don't want to go too granular on this because I don't know how many of your your viewers are dealing with Atmos at this point in time, but many have heard that it exists and people know that it's a deliverable format and that you can get a lot of flexibility in terms of sound placement in the image that you're working with. Well, the easiest way, and and a lot of people would challenge me on this because it's not, it was not part of its initial design Mm -hmm. is Atmos is really just a seven one monitoring format that happens to have overhead speakers. The way Atmos is sold is it's a seven one array with two stereo overheads that go from the front of the room to the back of the room, which has never sat right with me that you you would ever want a sound that's the same from the front of a, you know, 150-foot room or whatever it's going to be, and you want it for the same at the front as at the back. That just seems, that's never, that's never worked for my mindset. Sure. And luckily, the mixers I work with agreed. And so we we run it, it's looking at it as a 7-1. Anything that goes in the overheads, it's a it's what they call objects. So you have a, a bed, mm-hmm. which is your seven-one bed, and then you have not an infinite amount of objects. You have Dolby Atmos is limited to 128 channels between your beds and your objects. Mm-hmm. So you have, depending on how many beds, and oh God, I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyways, the objects are point sourcey, but you can increase the size. So rather than using these two weird strips, you can increase the size of the objects to take up a you know a quadrant. Yeah, and that you it's a, an actual spatial component. It sounds a little more technical than it actually is. Yeah. It's actually defining this isn't just going to be limited to this one set of speakers on the above right section of the room, which you can do. Sure, it can, like I said, it can get hyper specific. It can be hyper point sourcey down to individual speakers. Down to individual individual speakers where you can actually snap. It's like, oh, I want to be in that speaker. And there's a mode literally called snap mode. And you like, whap, and it can go right there, which i sure it has a purpose, whatever. But you can increase, well, what my guys have tended to do is they increase the size. They'll use it for like reverbs ab- above your head. So it's like, oh, they'll have this kind of, it's taking up, you know, this, this object is, it's been diverged essentially. Mm-hmm. So it takes up this, you know, a huge chunk of the upper right and then upper front, front, right, you know, front, left, same thing. And then depending on how they'll do a seven O overhead bed, essentially mm-hmm. based with these objects, which obviously takes away your object count, but this but is, do what, you need that? But do you and need you know, a million individual, but then there's guys who put everything they can into an object. Sure. It's like, once again, it's, it's all right. If it's, Works for you. I mean, on that note, I remember seeing uh, a very prevalent re-recording mixer by the name of Mike Minkler go through, uh, I guess, Life of Pi, if if I'm pronouncing that right. We'll go with Life of Pi. Life of Pi works. Um, So he was demonstrating how he mixed one of the Flying Fish 
scenes in there. And the number of objects swirling around the room in Dolby Atmos, I mean, I think he used all of them. And on the one hand, that's amazing that you can manage that amount of information. It sounded good. When I went and saw it in the theater, it sounded good. And that's what matters most. At the same time, somebody working in that same capacity and maybe even doing a, a film with the same kind of content, are they going to feel that they need to maximize every single thing that they can fly around all, you know, 64 some odd speakers? Or are they going to do it more similarly to how you guys are, yeah. which is, you know, we have we have our first 7.1 and we have our second 7.0 and we can work within those spaces just as effectively. One of the first tests we did, kind of along that, that reminds me of something we do, we just took pink noise, put it in a singular mono object, made it so it, you can make it so it's only in the ceiling. And we just literally just started taking it and panning it in a circle in the upper speakers. You know, started slow and then sped up. We recorded it so that we could reproduce it. It is amazing what your brain can do. Because immediately, to our ear, it made it sound like it had lowered down to the surrounds. Hmm. Just as it sped up, there was just something about the way the, the acoustics of the room, you know, the way your brain works. I don't know. But all I know is the faster it went, the more it just went into the bed. Hmm. What I, you know, effectively. Psychoacoustically. Psychoacoustically, exactly. And it was just like, okay, well, that answers a lot of questions. We can't put a bunch of stuff. Just, ah, it'll, just, it's a, it'll turn into a ball of mush first, mm -hmm. and then it will just kind of lower it, you know, anyhow. Um, good example of less is more. I don't know how many people saw Star Trek Beyond. I really liked it. Lucky enough to work on it. There's a scene where it looks like a big ship's about to attack the Enterprise, and it breaks into a million tiny little ships, and they go flying by. Mm -hmm. Of course, logic, much like the flying fish thing, you think, oh, I'm going to get a fuck ton of objects. I'm going to put a ship in every one. It sounded like hell. <laughs> um, so our we, we got it so that most of them were in the bed. And then the effects mixer took, I want to say, three and he had three ultra point source, ultra discrete, you know, like that. Man, it jumps out because now you've got this lower bed that's going bananas. Mm -hmm. But then you've got this lovely, these, these three or four discrete flybys that's like, man, you can't ignore those now. It's the contrast. It's it the contrast. contrast. Yeah, it's like a, it's, it's chaos versus having, you know, something with some contrast, something with some specificity. Mm -hmm. And it's it's amazing, and a lot of it's it's fiddling. You know, it's like oh, we did it the first time, like oh, just a big ball of mush. I'm like okay, well, let's try this. That's closer, you know. And then you just pare it down, pare it down, pare it down, pare it down. Sure. Because you know, it's not like all that was happening was those ships going by too. You got music cranking, people are screaming. You've got a whole rest of a movie happening. You've got a whole rest of the movie happening. People, we it, it, when we're on stage, we have different departments. You've got the music department, you've got the dialogue department, you've got the effects department, and they tend to put blinders on to an extent. They've been much like we're talking about the filmmakers and their visual effects. These guys do the same thing. It's like the dialogue editor, dialogue editorial department, usually like two guys. They're ultra focused on their craft, mm -hmm. and that's great. Problem is, sometimes they can't see past that. The effects guys are no different. The music guys are no different. The music guys have the added fun of the way they tend to look at it is protecting the composer, which I get. 
sure. you know, the, the, the composer has gotten paid way more than most of us are ever going to see in our lifetimes for this one piece of score. It's a, the score drives the film. You know, don't, don't tell the effects guys I said that because to them, you know, the effects drive the film if it's an action movie. Don't tell the dialogue guys I said that well, because... the dialogue drives you know, the film. The words drive the film. If there's no words, there's no movie. There's no story. Precisely. Movies are story. Story is words, you know. And so everybody tends to fixate on their particular craft. Mm. That's not bad. That's great. They should be ultra-focused on what they do. The problem is we're not working on an audiobook. We're not making a record, and we're not making a sound effects library. We're making a film. And all three of those components, dialogue, music, and effects, have to come together as effectively as possible to tell the film's story. Sometimes the music's going to be cranking loud. That makes perfect sense. It's going to drive, 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 drive. Sometimes it's got to pull away. Best example, I think it's Return of the King. Is It's like, you know, all the armies are charging each other, and the music's... Ah! The music's going crazy, and man, right before contact, they rip out all the music, and all it is is the visceralness of all these bodies and all this tack and all these, you know, all this, all these, all this weaponry, just coming together, and it's fantastic and it's amazing. That's just, but that's just that one instant. You still have to take into context that you've got a two-hour and whatever-minute movie where all three of these components have to work together. As seamlessly as possible, right? You know, we're we're not. I said we're 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 not making an audiobook. We're not making a CD. We're not making a sound effects library demo disc or demo file, whatever, whatever (laughs) whatever the kids are calling it these days. And that's that's a very important thing to focus on because it it requires constant focus. At this point, at this level, everybody is kind of on the same page that yeah, we need. The contrast of music is going to drive certain things and sound effects are going to drive other things and dialogue is going to drive other things besides Mm -hmm. those. Uh, There is, at least from what I've been able to discern doing some of this stuff, it's this mentality that at any point you need to be able to have the option that any one of those elements at any given time can drive that scene. And so it all needs to be treated as though it's the only thing that's going to be happening. Exactly. It has Every component has to be perfect. And that's where some of these guys, like I said, once again, they get the blinders on. Mm-hmm. And But that's going to make that component perfect so that it can be used most effectively in its context at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. It's all it's all context. you know. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what makes, to, to my mind, a good re-recording mixer is someone who is not, even if it's, okay, you've got, this guy's handling all the dialogue and music, this guy's handling all the effects. Okay, but the effects guy, he's listening to the dialogue. He knows when to get out of the way. You know, the music guy is listening to the effects because if he's got some string thing that's really grinding on a more, at that point in the films, a more important effects concept, he's going to be able to, he's going to tuck that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're working with one another constantly to make the proper space at the proper time for the proper component. Sure. Now, it's not a, a uncommon situation, but your stage has yourself as kind of the hub of the room mm-hmm. making everything work around these two re-recording mixers. Yeah. But you have two mixers. And in, I'd say, the vast majority of content from, I guess, just below what you might consider the major leagues, if we want to call it that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from there kind of down into the independent levels and more of the, I guess, sort of run and gun sort of stuff, if you want to look at it that way, there's usually a single 
re-recording mixer. Quite often, yes. There's usually a single or maybe two or three sound effects editors. Mm -hmm. And in these bigger situations, how do you how do you deal with two mixers? How is that workflow different than obviously just the one single person handling everything? You just you give them everything they want always. <laughs> it just all needs to be perfect all you know, the time. Essentially, as trite as that sounds, yes. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I've often looked at my job as a concierge. I'm there to give everybody what they need all the time. It's, it's kind of like I'm here to try and figure out all the problems all the time, like we were talking about earlier. And uh, it's, it's, like I said, it's a lot of mind reading. And the difference between, say, what my job entails on a gigantic action movie versus a little romantic comedy, it's almost identical. It's just the mm -hmm. amount, it's, it's the, uh, the sheer amount of data of one versus the other. But the day-to-day the -day of, okay, I need to make sure, okay, on this one, I know the dialogue mixer has, he, he just got a bunch of new ADR. My priority is to get him up and on the air as fast as humanly possible because he's going to get to work right away because he's got all this new stuff. Or, oh, a new music cue came in. Okay, I'm going to prioritize the music so that he can get on that. Sure. Okay, we have a massive effects conform. Okay, I guess who's getting his stuff first? <laughs> the size of the film doesn't matter because the, the general context is identical. Sure. So I'm curious. I want to change gears just a little bit. Please. Just kind of these concepts are uh, making me think about it. This has been a constantly evolving process of, as you've just described, chaos, a mm -hmm. lot of changes, a lot of indecision, a lot of technology facilitating those indecisive, I guess, situations and said chaos that results. Impromptu situations. <laughs> right. It's all improvised. It's all improvised. I'm, I'm curious where... If you, you know, if you're looking forward into the next few years of filmmaking and the next few years of post-production sound, specifically in the feature world, because mm -hmm. features are very different from television and television is very different from, I guess, a lot of other things like streaming has changed a lot and films aren't being made for the same space, for the same structure, even yeah. to some degree for the same audience. Yeah. Although I think that, you know, may be an argument to be had. But where, where do you see all this going over the course of the next few years, maybe next generation of filmmakers that will be seeing and dealing with this stuff? The thing that keeps me up at night, I mean, I'm 46 years old as of this recording, and I've been doing this since, you know, more or less since I was 18, and I've obviously seen a lot of changes. But the thing that terrifies me more than anything, and it has started to happen, is we're not done when we're done. Uh, you know, visual effects coming in very late, like after the movie's released. <laughs> As may have just happened, like, oh, I don't know, last December. On a for certain, the first time in history. For the first time in history on a certain release. That, <coughs> that, that terrifies me. Because that toothpaste is out of the tube now. You can't put it back. No. And so that's step one to the ultimate terror for me is oh the movie came out it was received well in territories one three and seven but say territories two and four something didn't go quite as well it hasn't happened yet I, it's the thing that terrorized it just terrifies me is that a movie say for its first three weeks of release a larger like a multi hundred million like an avengers type thing so or you know whatever something that just cost a lot of money that 
in the grand scheme of things, this what I'm describing would not be an expensive task. It wouldn't be that crazy to see something happen like that where, you know, we want to target a certain type of viewer, or a certain demographic, mm-hmm. or a certain territory with a specific couple of changes. The fear is, it's like, you know, now we're still delivering DCP packages. At some point, this is all going to stream. It's all going to go up onto a cloud-based server, and the and the studios are going to love it because they're going to know exactly how many times it played in theater in every theater that it's in. Mm-hmm. It's it's got its key. It trigger every time you hit go, it triggers a play. They know how many times it's been done. But if if and like I said, this is all theoretical, but I just I, I can't see it not happening. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? We've updated. All we got to do is update the cloud. We have to update the, you know, whatever singular delivery master, if we ever get to a point like that, where we're not making, you know, for every film's, every format's got X amount of, you know, delivery masters. Like, oh, you just upload that and Territory 2 pulls it, you know, it's not even pulling it down. It's There's, streaming direct. It's streaming direct. It's, it's I, I'm terror, terrified by this idea. It's not happened. I don't even know the technology is there for it to happen yet. But the technology for what we're doing right now didn't exist two years ago. Sure. So two years from now, this could be very normal. And that is that keeps me up at night. Well, the crazy thing is the technology does exist to be able to do that. We're just not using it in that way right now. Exactly. It's a matter of outfitting thousands upon thousands of theaters and you know X amount of screens to do it. Mm-hmm. All I'm referring to at this point, obviously, is the theatrical release. Sure, I'm sure that with net, you'll probably see it first. To your point, you'll see it first with Amazon, Netflix, you know, Apple, and and all the other various streaming streaming networks that are about to be poured down upon us over the next year or two. Mm-hmm. But from a theatrical standpoint, it's yeah, we're we're a couple of years out from it. And one of the greatest things about finishing a movie for me is that once it's done. It's done. We've had some chaos at the end, but it's like, and I have worked, I hate to keep beating up on Star Trek, but Star Trek's the greatest example of a movie I was working on doing deliverables and archival stuff, which is also part of my job, the day it came out. That's the only time it's ever happened where it's like, okay, this movie really, it's, I'm here on a Friday, but I can't remember what the date was, July 20-something or another. I'm sitting here watching Star Trek archival passes and it's it's in the i could go i could go up the hill and watch this in a theater right now (laughs) like oh my god i guess this is i guess this is me now welcome to the future i guess yeah this is welcome to now and (laughs) that's never happened since thankfully but it's it's going to happen again it will Mm -hmm. and it will happen again in the context of what we've been discussing where it's like okay the movie came out on memorial day a week after memorial day we're mastering another release of it with a different ending or, you know, Oh, we had to, we're, we're we already do. I don't even know the best. I, I don't want to call it self censorship for other countries, but we do versions for other countries. We're, we're already playing that game as well. And those, those are almost treated as separate films and yes. mixed separately. And the whole process, while it may be the same movie to a degree, it still requires crew and it requires people and it requires a whole separate process from the domestically released version of the film. Yeah, and there's yeah, there's nothing scaled down about it. It is a full release. It is, you know, every release format you can imagine. Bam. 
it's an an M&E, a music and effects only, a a foreign, you know, an English dialogue-less version for every one of those formats as well. And then, so we'll do that, and it'll go off to to China because it's primarily it's a massive market. Sure, that's 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 how this all begun began. And then we'll go back to working. We'll finish off with our our final visual effects, and we'll get all our director's last notes in. And a week later, we'll do the whole that whole mastering component again for you know our domestic or ROW rest of world uh, release. They're all a little different. That's what I'm what I'm really talking about here are the massive two hundred million dollar plus action movies. Sure, yeah. We're not doing little rinky-dink, you know, comedies. Well, with, it's with fortunate. It's fortunate that that is only necessary to embark upon as a crazy technical journey when it comes to some of the higher level, higher budget action films. Because if it was every single film, first off, it's in many cases it's not justified because the target audience will most appreciate it in a certain realm of the world, and that may be all you need. That may be all you want to go after. But also it's so unbelievably expensive to make a whole other movie when you've already got the one. Yes. <laughs> you know, I feel like to some degree it's a limitation of we just can't do it within the budget. Well, there's just no rationale behind it. You know, there, there, there are a lot of movies. They don't have international appeal. Well, why would you go – why would you jump through these hoops for a movie that may never play in – these other territories. It's just, it's pointless. I think that's, I think that's actually a good thing to speak to from a creative standpoint and the subjective standpoint of this whole process is, yeah, there are the money makers that are out there, the tent poles that are out there. And I think a lot of people, myself included to some degree, love to hate on that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. but it is those films that allows major studios or, you know, that sort of realm to also be able to invest in smaller stuff that maybe isn't going to have those kinds of margins, yeah. maybe isn't going to you know go and gross a billion dollars worldwide. It's going to do two hundred million dollars worldwide. It's going to do fifty million dollars worldwide. It's going to do ten million dollars worldwide. Love or hate a movie like La La Land. If it weren't for some movie with a robot probably smashing something, you wouldn't see it. Certainly, it would not get made. That's... Or, it, or it would get made, and in today's environment, it would be on some streaming platform you never heard of. Yep, and and that would be that. Or I mean, you can take your pick of any variety of film at, at that level. That yes, they're mainstream released films now, but if if it weren't for the shit is on fire show, they make, making exist. making a billion dollars, you know they they wouldn't ever take the why would you take the chance on something that you know is not going to make you another billion dollars? I said it's cynical as all hell, and I get that. You cynical? I know we're. <laughs> But it's also a huge component of what we do. And to, to, to make a very subtle segue here, a lot of what we've been able to learn on these larger movies, it gives us the skill set to now take that skill set and apply it to no budget films. Um, you know, we've you and I especially have been fortunate enough to work on several together. And I, I and I did some before that. I I was very nice to a driver very early in my career who had gone to CalArts. And I did a lot of CalArts student film mixing for a long time just because I was really nice to a driver who I, it wasn't like I was going out of my way because I could get something from him. I liked him. He was a cool guy. He came hang out with me and we would shoot the shit. And that turned into this avenue for me to get into mixing student films. 
which is I was able to take this, all the skills that I'd learned mm-hmm. over the course of my career, and now I can apply it to something that they would have, and I can pat myself a little bit on the back here, <laughs> you know, to, to apply it to these guys who would never would have been in a situation like that. They, sure. They'd never be on a stage that, um, of, of the caliber we have. They would never be, they never have the tools that are at our, you know, our fingertips. Sure. And oh. that's, that, and to be able to give back after all that was, it's been great. You know, I've, I've done everything from student thesis films to, you know, no budget two hour documentaries. You know, you and I just finished one. Certainly. Yeah. And it was a, a really great experience. And yeah. it was, it was also an interesting look at how, certain decisions in the editorial process on those kinds of films where people are, you know, just breaking into directing their first feature or editing mm-hmm. their first feature, or they're they're trying to get into this other realm of content creation, how knowing some of the things that are used on the top level sort of stuff, some of the practices that are in place on that, how helpful they can be to follow those same paradigms, yeah. or how problematic it can be if you don't follow those same or paradigms. We're back to the don't know what you don't know situation. And then, you know, and those things, it's like, it becomes a teachable moment. And, you know, I think every one of these things you and I have done together, a huge component of it is like, dude, no, (laughs) this is why you don't do it. Like, this is why we asked you for, you know, whatever. Right. We could go and that's, that's a whole other conversation. Well, I think it's good to, to get into a little bit of that. And specifically with this latest one that we did, Oh, something something as simple as a start mark, a start mark and a leader. Because at the end of the day, sync's kind of important, kids. And to know where you, if you don't know where you started, you don't know where you're going to end. And if you've got just, oh, I just threw this arbitrary start mark I found on the internet on that has nothing to do with anything. It has the potential to derail things further down the line for you. Yeah. It's a it's a key component of of your ultimate delivery is you know, so knowing where you started. Knowing where you end, and knowing that everything in the middle of all that is going to be an exact same. It's going to be exact same. <laughs> it's kind of important, you know. And I, I get very pedantic about that, but it's just like so much of what we do is it's about maintaining control. Well, it's the it's almost the is it plugged in, is it turned on kind of thing in troubleshooting. Where yeah, yeah it could be any number of these crazy issues that are come up down the line, or it could just be that you need to flip a switch on and off. Yeah, and if that hasn't been done first. We don't know what else is going to be coming up at the end of it. This is that same. We know it starts here. We know that this two pop is in sync at, you know, 59.58 in time code. And it's exactly two seconds before the first frame of action. Mm -hmm. And everything from that point on, we're going to relate exactly to that point. And so we know it's good. If we know where step one is and and step one is concrete Mm -hmm. and and it's correct, Man, we can keep things way more on the on the rails. Yeah, it it it, it sounds like it wouldn't work that way, but it one hundred percent does. Sure, and it's like it's like you 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 want to build your knowledge. You know, you you need that foundation of knowledge to build to the next step. It is as silly as it sounds. A start mark. Who cares about a start mark these days? It's a sink. Ah, I look at it. It's right. It's like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Will it be on a big screen? Yeah, yeah. A frame or two frames, especially we're talking video frames, not film frames. Two video frames, it's just like you start quite, hmm, is that right? I don't know. It's like, no, it's not. 
It's not right. Well, it's interesting because, again, with the, with the translation between something like streaming where everybody's watching on an iPad or a laptop versus the theatrical environment, two frames on an iPad or a laptop barely looks like anything. And well, it's normal. You're, you're, you're dealing with the delay of just the stream at that point. That's, you know, that's why everything on Netflix looks a little, little soft. A little weird. A little weird. Whereas everything in the theatrical environment, if you go to an IMAX film and something's two frames out, life is real weird real quickly. When you got a two-story tall head and the lips are... It's like, yeah, it's real obvious real fast. <laughs> that's, it needs to be right. The, the top-level quality stuff needs to be done to that standard so that as it trickles down into the, the smaller deliverable formats, the less complicated stuff, it's right all the way. One of the things I think especially novice, beginner, small filmmakers need to take into context is with the amount of streaming platforms that are available now, the amount of content needed by those streaming platforms is grown exponentially. There is there's a requirement, a need, a desire for more, more, more. So what seems like might be your little half-hour documentary, short, whatever – there's a fighting chance now that it could end up on a, a real platform. Sure. So you and you have to start learning how to work within the confines of delivering to you know these these people, these groups, these you know it's not just like oh here's my here's my MP4. Have fun. You know they 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 have very specific guidelines of how they want to re- receive the material from from audio level to once again to sync sure so the more people learn about this this foundational boring pedantic bullshit the, the better off they're going to be at it, the very least if you're not doing it yourself and having to deal with these sorts of specifications like Netflix is a great example because they make their spec sheets public mm-hmm. and it's very much you will be at minus I think it's minus 27 LKFS plus or minus yep plus and, minus 3 yep you've yep. got to have everything true peak limited you've got to have everything you know the the standard that they're using is now the VisLM plugin from New Gen Audio that's how they're you know one of the things that's kind of ballparked is all right we've officially supported that this will fall within our specs. So if you're using this, it's going to be that closer to a guarantee. Things like that, being familiar enough to request in the right vocabulary, being familiar enough that when you request it, you'll know, okay, these are about the the things that I should see from this. I may not know how you get there, but I know what to ask for and when it's wrong. And then with the glory of the internet, you can probably fake it till you make it. Like LKFS, I don't even know what that is. Hey, man, it's just as easy to punch it into Google at that point. It's out there. It's out there. The information is out there. We live in a golden age of information that way. But, yeah, to, to have that, that – that, I, can't, I can't say enough – that foundational knowledge of how do I prepare my audio session, my picture session, so that it's easiest for guys downstream to work with, where I can like, oh, I don't want to start this at zero hour. I want this – I want this – the sync pop, this head sync pop, to be at, as you put it, 59, 58, so that the first frame of, of picture action, boom, right at one hour. It's it's concrete. It's locked in. It's There's no question about it. I can hand this to somebody. They'll see where that pop is, and they'll, by virtue of that it is in a, a known point in space, mm-hmm. they're going to know where to proceed from there. It takes a lot of the... The running in circles asking questions out of the equation. And once again, we, we go right back to efficiency. 
And if everyone's speaking the same language, and it's it's a very universal language, this is not anything that we're pulling out of our asses. This has been a very consistent concept that predates us as humanoids. You sure. Know, <laughs> you know, before I was born, you know, you had your start mark, and then 12 feet later, now eight seconds, you had your first frame of action. And you had six seconds or nine feet, same thing. You had your, your head pop. Mm-hmm. This has not changed ever. So we have this, well, relatively speaking, we have this glorious constant mm-hmm. that, that is there to help everybody. And it's shocking, especially with people who say didn't come through film school, and even some people who did come through film school. This is the stuff that was not fun. Most people that go through film school, they want to be directors or writers. They don't, the technical aspect of it. And especially the sonic aspect. I mean, sound for most people is a class that you elect to take if you want to or you have to take and you don't want to. Exactly. Either way, we, we, we get short shrift. And I have been very fortunate over my career to do tons of tours for various school groups. Sure. It's one of my favorite things to do. It has been since I was in my early 20s. When I was the same age as these, these guys coming through, it's, it's always been fun. And to show them, that, to pull back the curtain a little bit and show them this isn't just this stupid shit that they don't need to pay attention to. That is, especially from the sound aspect, that this is... This could make a break. This could make a break. I mean, I'm biased, but I would say it's 51% of the experience. Picture and their sound. It's like, yeah, there were silent pictures before, but you had to read. But now it's like, man, I don't. It's, it all boils down to story. And story is words. And words are sounds. You know, kind of like we were talking about with editorial. You know, the dialogue editors earlier. I do agree with them with that, you know, and especially the more independent stuff, the documentaries or, you know, short films that are very, very much focused on the spoken word. So let's get specific for a minute if we can. There are a lot of issues that you've had to fight in getting stuff from content from independent creators, content from first time directors into, you know, top level kind of shape so that Mm -hmm. the expectations that are set by the major motion picture industry, they're kind of in sync with those expectations. What are some of those things that you've guided, you've been able to guide independent filmmakers to that you would suggest other people pay more attention to? What workflow tips, what, you know, practices? The biggest practice I would say where it starts is this the thing? Actually, I would defer to you on this. Is is recording it properly? This is way more your world than mine. You know, that's what my family. My, oh yeah, the one little thing I keep forgetting to uh, bring up is I got in the old-fashioned way. I got in through nepotism. I'm, <laughs> I'm third generation. My grandfather and my father were both production mixers, so I should know more about recording dialogue than I do. Oh, you're one of these guys. I'm one okay. of those oh, guys, man. No, I, I can I I admit and I embrace that I got in on based on my last name. I stayed in based on my own efforts, but I got my foot got put in the door the old fashioned way. Well, to to jump in on just that because there is a lot of contention in there, and I know that I've been kind of like one of those guys that's nepotism crap. It's too rampant. It's been the experience of pretty much everybody that I've talked to that anyone who does get in based on the name, if they don't have it. They wash out pretty quick. Very quick. And it's changed dramatically even since 1991 when I you know, got my foot in the door. I think what happened, to get off track just for a brief moment, was that it was very rampant for a very long time. And people who should have washed out, people who should have never set foot on a studio lot, 
had very long careers somehow, even though they had no interests and they had no drive. For whatever reason, it was, they were there because dad told them to go there and they'd make a really good living and they just kind of faked their way through 30 years of a career sometimes. It's, huh. And I came in right at the tail end of that, in my opinion. And I saw a lot of people who just had no interest in what they were doing. Their capabilities were low. And then especially when we started moving towards the digital stuff. I mean, I was fortunate enough to learn it all very glacially. Uh, you know. But a lot of these old timers that are probably younger than I am right now, they just could they could not grasp it because they'd never had to grasp anything because it was very it was a very simple job for a very long time. Right. Now it has become, as you well know, highly technical, highly specific. The stress levels have quintupled. Yeah, you have to want this. You have to want really this bad because now. it is not. It's a very fun job. It's a very challenging job. It's a very rewarding job. It is a very fucking hard <laughs> job. It's hard on your social life. It's hard on your health. It's you have to want to do this. Mm -hmm. There, this is. I, I don't want I would never want to discourage anybody, but I'd always want to be realistic. This is <laughs> it's it's for someone who has sneaking up on 30 years of experience every year. I have to try harder and harder because it changes more and more. And there are more and more demands and there are less and less resources from a personnel standpoint because the crews have that's another thing I never really did touch on. The crews have shrunk massively since I began from an editorial standpoint. They went from 40 guys to seven. From a mixed crew, they went from three to two. And from a machine room, when I was in the machine rooms, when I started, there was three of us. Now there's me. There's one guy. And, and all that and same. It's, it's way more work. It's way more work. Which is yeah, it's just the way it is. And there's, there's nothing wrong with it. It just is what it is. Sure. I, I would never want to bullshit anybody that this is like some glamorous... You know, all right, you know, I'm I'm rubbing elbows with directors and actors. <laughs> no. Sometimes even microphones. Sometimes even microphones. Sorry. <laughs> um there there's not a lot of glory. It's th my position is quite th frankly thankless. Like I was saying earlier, I don't know what you do, but you seem to do it well. Mm -hmm. And that that that's something you really have to take into into account. I've seen a lot of guys get very disenfranchised very quickly mm -hmm. because they came in thinking, "Oh, rubbing elbows, having a good time, walking the red carpet, metaphorically speaking. It's a tough guy. It's a tough gig. And especially from a, a mixed text job, you're typically there before anybody and you're there way after everybody else has left. Right. It's not uncommon for the stage drop at seven and at midnight I finally leave because I've had to prep X amount of deliverables to go out for, you know, whatever the situation, there's a million different situations. Sure. But like I said, the, the nepotism thing kind of came to a screeching ass halt because of the added pressures, the added workload, the added responsibilities that were put on guys in our positions. And, and editorial as well. You couldn't hide some guy to just, you know, you couldn't hide Bob's kid to go cut, you know, cloth every now and again. Right. You know, you, there's just, there's nowhere to hide anymore. Which is fantastic. It is it has taken the the level of work and it has just raised it up, because now everybody's there knows what they're doing. For the most, I mean, it's like anything. There's always going to be a few guys that are, there's outliers. Sure. But for the most part, it has it has risen the level of participation. Mm -hmm. It has risen the level of professionalism. It has risen the level of the content we're able to create to levels that I find amazing. Just to see how it, how the arc of the last say 20 years 
has been fascinating. And upward, Just, it hasn't been a it hasn't been a downward swing. It hasn't gotten no. It is definitely worse the, the, the amount of skill, the amount of the, the the improvement of the track on some of these features is just. It's it's mind boggling the the level of detail that we that these guys who are just they're laser focused and they love this stuff they love it you know and they they want to work hard and there's it's 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 remarkable. So with that improvement of quality, improvement of professionalism, improvement of the the whole I guess working dynamic. Again, what do you see as some of the things that you know people who are just learning about this stuff, whether they be trying to get into the sound world specifically or trying to learn more about sound from the picture cutting standpoint or directing standpoint, what can they what can they take from this? What can they learn from it? It's as simplistic as it sounds, is just do it. Just try. You know, try and, you know, set up a you know, if especially especially at the student level, everyone's it's it's an all in thing. You're the director, you're the writer, you're the editor. You're the sound effects editor. You're you're doing all this work. Just if you can learn the very basics of preparing a session to move forward, it will make your life, especially since you are a one man band, it will make your life remarkably easier. It will make everything flow better everywhere. I mean, I, I'll be the first one to admit I only work with Pro Tools. So whenever I, ever anybody asks me a Final Cut question or a Premiere question, it's just like I don't know, man. I wish I could answer you. But at the same time, all that stuff does intertwine. Yes. So just don't there, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Once you've got that foundation, right? Once you've got that foundation, your mistakes you can you can roll them back so much easier. You know, once you've crammed all this crap into a session, you're going to be able to na- you know you're going to be able to navigate it that much better, which means you're going to make fewer mistakes. Weird how that works. Weird how that works. I think the organizational part of that is really a huge component that at least I've seen from a lot of independent filmmakers and independent content creators is, you know, simple, relatively simple principles of you're working in Premiere or DaVinci or Final Cut. Final Cut has uh, interestingly transcended beyond the use of tracks, which is so far interesting in its compatibility with the rest of the workflow. But Yeah, uh, yeah no thanks. <laughs> but something more like what you would expect out of an Avid Rig yeah. from Premiere, from DaVinci or, or programs like that. Keeping like sounds on like tracks. Keeping all your dialogue organized at the top of the session, the music next, the sound effects next. Because at some point, even, even if you're only dealing with, say, 25, 30 tracks, which is, it's amazing to me to think that that's, that's nothing right. from when I started recording music on an eight-track recorder. You know, when I was 21 years old or whatever. And I think that now I'm saying, oh, 25, 30, 40 tracks. That's tiny, man. <laughs> but it can spiral out of control so quickly. Yeah, to your to, to your point. It's like, okay, you've got four tracks. Of, that's all your dialogue. That's great. It'll, it'll keep it where you can, you can keep your eye on it and it's there. Then, yeah, follow it in food groups. You know, dialogue, your music, your effects, your backgrounds. If you happen to have any Foley, that's great. Keep it separate from the effects. Mm-hmm. Trust me, it will help you in the long run. It will help everyone It'll in the long run. It'll help everyone in the long run. If you've got uh, another another really good way to look at stuff is checkerboarding. So you're not you're not you don't you don't just have this this shotgun blast of information all over the place that you know 
you hand it to some poor mixer or you're the poor mixer. And next thing you know, you're like, you know, you're like, you're like playing Twister. Right. Trying to figure out where that one line was. Figure out where that one line is. Okay. I've got this, you know, component of, I've got this car door, the car start and the car away. It's like, but I've got the car. It's like, no, just, but, 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 but it's, it's so easy. It's like, then it's going to lay right out in front of you on your console. It's like, Bink, 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 bink. Okay, root, 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 root. Nice and easy. Very straight ahead. It seems so logical to me because this is what I do all day. I have seen it come across in sessions. It's obviously not that logical to most people. <laughs> but it, it's the simplest tool possible for from an organizational standpoint. It's like, okay, I've got my background audiences. So I want to go, but, 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 but. And then I want to go, but, 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 but. That way, it's just like I'm never, I'm never crossing up. I can just, I can go right down the line, and then I can go right back to the start. Like really, man, you're going left to right. That's it, it's, it's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny the uh, just that organizational idea at first when I started looking at broadcast television and major feature film sessions and trying to work within those. The organization is so expansive mm-hmm. because of the necessities of projects like that. Yeah, it's very similar in, you know, how you maintain track organizations, very similar how you maintain, you know, things on like tracks and groups and like places and all that. But I didn't ever really anticipate doing the, you know, standard left to right, top to bottom, very, very straight ahead and logical organizational standpoint. I started doing a lot of shorter form stuff like marketing and advertising pieces. And the most effective way to organize something that has 80 tracks in the span of 30 seconds is very much that. You group these sort of moments, these little vignettes of something happening into a group of tracks that very easily splay out. Mm-hmm. You know that each is sequential and you just go left to right, top to bottom, and you can manipulate each one. That totally applies in every realm of content when it comes to organizing sound. 100%. It's it's weird how small stuff like that can have such an optimizing effect. And it, Yeah, it, it will save you time. It will save you headache. It will, it, it will only improve your project. I've been on $100 million movies where part of my job was the mixer, watching the mixer pull his hair out because at that level, that had not been done. And so it was like one of those, Bill, pull down the rest of the reels, put them in an order. Put, put it so like like a great example, like Foley, it's just like, oh, there's, you've got, for some reason, there's like 56 channels, which is way wide, even for a large theatrical Foley session. It's just like, I don't know, my job, I consolidated it down to something more manageable mm-hmm. so that it would actually, you know, fit in the console in front of them. And then I got it where it's like, oh, there's hand pad on channel one, channel 17, and channel 32. It's what? Oh, no, you you wanted it's like especially from a Foley sound. It's like okay, here's here's all my hand pads. They're all on. It's hard to say unless you know what you got. These three channels are always going to be the hand pads, and it's like oh, I'm going to have this movement here, and I'm going to, I'm going to make it as consistent as possible, right? Because it's going to make the mixer at that point. Now it's it's literally right in front of him. It's like I'm looking. I where's the hand pads? Channel three through five. I know exactly where to look. And every single time one comes up, I know that's going to be right here. I'm going to mix those down, whatever. Backgrounds are another thing. It's just like you don't want your winds, rain, and carbides all in one group. You want them separated out so it's consistent. It seems like more work when you're first setting it up, but as soon as it's set and you never set it up again, and now it's like, oh, winds, bugs, 
brain, you know, whatever. And it's like, oh, A, B, C, D. Hey, it's all separate. It's like, oh, these, these stupid bugs are too loud. Just pull down that one group, right? Exactly where they are. Nice and simple. It's you're not you're not pulling the mic down. You're not pulling four of the things down with it, and like, oh god, you know, now I'm boned. Right. You know, it's 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 small organizational things like that that will make your session tighter, a fish more efficient, and it's going to make it sound better. One of the interesting things that uh, I guess we ran into uh, on the last project that we got to work on together was translation between the picture editing program, Final Cut, and the standard operating environment for us, Pro Tools. And you'd think that there'd be a seamless way to get all these things talking to each other. And there never has been. No. Ever. No. Avid is the only one that has really kind of tried to unify this. They they kind of cross the lines with each other. It's it's not like this. It's kind of like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just enough that it doesn't break always. Yes. And the AAF workflow between Avid Media Composer and Pro Tools is reasonably reliable. Yeah. But OMF has never been a standardized format, and so everybody kind of makes it differently. And you get all this craziness between Adobe Premiere and Pro Tools. You get craziness between, I mean, DaVinci has the ability to generate OMFs, but I, for the life of me, have not been able to get one to reliably open the way that I want it to in Pro Tools, talking back and forth. And Final Cut, now that they're not using a track-based system, that's a lot of information that gets, like, weirdly... Manipulated or scattered. Yeah, it's strange. The, uh, I think a big organizational point on this and to some degree creative, but it's, it's more something that video editors shouldn't waste their time on as much. Maybe drawing in fades with volume. That's, that's the big one that we've run into over the last little bit is the amount of time that had to have been wasted. (laughs) (laughs) Automating in volume instead of just drawing a fade into the region. Oh God, it's like the the. Look at it this way: <laughs> as soon as I touch a fader, I just blew away your fade. Yep. All that work you did. As soon as I decide, oh, I want to come into this thing four dB lighter. All that work just disappeared. Or, you know, the sink doesn't really fit right now that we're in a really sonically treated environment. I've got to pull this out a little bit. I've got to push it back a little bit. Fade's gone. Yeah. Or the fade now lives in the meat of the file and is going to bone me. So now I have to take the time to go either automate over it, delete it, or work in trim mode the entire time, which still won't fix the problem of if I need to handle something out. The fade's in the wrong place. So now I either have to go, like I said, nuke it, Remix it, offset it. Either either way, I have to go into the file. I have to take time to do something that I don't want to take that time. So let me uh, let me change gears one more time here because we only have so much time, and I don't want to you know keep you here for hours and hours <laughs> beyond what you've already uh, dedicated to us. It's like our normal nights. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me change gears a little bit here, and uh, just real quick before we're kind of out of time. I got to have some stories of various films over the years that have been just absolutely insane above and beyond. <sighs> yes. <laughs> it all boils down to much like we were talking about earlier. It's usually a visual effects issue. I worked on one movie where the composer was fired 
while we were pre-mixing. So we were we were under a week away from final mix, <laughs> final mix, <laughs> and they let the composer go. There had been a situation with tax breaks. They hired a specific guy. I don't want. I can't get too specific. Didn't really work out, and they they bin the guy, and um, it made life a living hell. I will give the the guy who took over did a fantastic job. He got his demos early on. We were able to start working, mm-hmm. but we didn't get the finals obviously for some time, and that that was what got me to work my lovely one hundred and forty one point three hour week. Good. It was Lord. <laughs> Before you pull out your pen and paper and figure, oh, there's only like 156 hours in a week, it was a perfect storm of pay periods where we were working until, oh, God, it's it's oddly all kind of a blur. <laughs> we would play back for the director at like midnight, fix till three, and come back at eight. That was that a big part of that week. But then our, our pay period where I work is from Sunday to Saturday. So Saturday, I came in at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't leave until Monday. So oh. it was it was kind of cheating. It was cheating from a mathematical point of view to get to that 141.3. But the fact that remains that I was living there, you know, for these god-awful hours. Um, I screamed at a friend of mine because he came up to be nice enough to tell me that lunch was here. And I just remember, I'm fucking sleeping. Because <laughs> it was oh like God. the first time in a day and a half that I had laid down for 15 minutes. And it's like, I didn't want to eat anymore, man. I just, I just, I just need to stop. You know? So. Well, that, if I remember right, is according to our uh, union tallying, one of the highest l- numbers of hours worked in a week. It wouldn't surprise me. There, there's a, I have a, a compatriot and. He works on the Transformers movies, and he was so mad, so mad that he couldn't get anywhere with. I think the closest he got was like twenty five hours away from it, and it was it was like all I could think was, "Dude, what are you thinking? You don't want this. You don't want this. This is horrible. I if I could take it back, I would. This sucked. Mm-hmm. This is like the worst thing I've ever been put through in my life. I mean." I was having like I, I physically I was physically reacting to it. I would start shaking like arbitrarily. I would just be sitting there, looked down at my hands, and they're and they're shaking like like I hadn't eaten or you know I was like right. something like that. It's like this sucks. And like I can't stop this. I'd have muscle spasms in my forearms. My legs would hurt. It's like why are my legs hurting? I've been sitting all day. Hmm. Like, now, Bill, I know that I have a few fewer years of uh, experience in life in general and in the post-production world, but I feel like it's important to mention to you, sleep is useful sometimes. I, I have a picture editor friend who always jokes at me. He's like, I, th- I thought you'd evolve past sleep when I would complain about being tired. It's like, I, I apparently I need less sleep than most people. I don't know. I don't, it's, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know how I do it. I wish I couldn't <laughs> because then I'm, but then I probably wouldn't be here talking to you because I, you know, I can take a beating better than, than the next guy, I guess. <laughs> Another fun little one. And I, I hate to make this sound as grotesque as it's about to sound was I was working on a show. I wasn't having a good time working seven days a week. We were only working from 9am to 9pm and I was riding my bike a lot and I, was, I would commute the 12 miles each way because got to do something. <laughs> and I was, I, I had missed a bunch of family events. I'd missed my kid's birthday. I had missed uh, two of my friend's wedding. 
who I had set up. And they were both old, you know, very dear friends of mine. I'd, I'd introduced them and I had to miss their wedding because of this show. I was not, like I said, I was not having a good time. It felt, it was, it was a project and we've all been on them where it seems like we're just going in circles constantly. Mm-hmm. We're not making it better. We're not making it worse. We're trying different things and eventually getting right back to where we started. So it's very, it was a very frustrating, like, God, I'm missing out on all this stuff and there's not like a, it, this thing sounds wonderful, but there's not a market improvement for the amount of time we're putting into it. Right. So one morning I, I leave, I leave my house and I'm riding to work and I made the mistake of riding my bicycle in the straightest line possible and the most legal way possible. And a lady turned right in front of me and I slammed into the side of her at about 25 miles an hour, totally cleared her car and uh, basically punched the ground with my body. Oh, my God. <laughs> Came up, and my wrist was at an interesting S angle. Ended up, finally, the you know, ambulance came, got me. My the, the front of my frame was almost completely sheared off. I hit her so hard. I always, like, I always say I got hit by a car, but it, technically I did hit her because she turned illegally right in front of me. <laughs> um, but go through the day. It sucked. A lot of pain. Get a cast on. Finally see an orthopedist. They manually set my wrist, which if... Anybody watching has ever had done, you know, it's the one of the worst fucking things you can ever go through in your life. Oh my God. But um, they finally get the cast on and I looked down at it and my hand was like, was like this. And all I could think was, I don't have to go back. I can't work the keyboard like this. My hand was set. It was set like that, not like this. And it was the greatest part of that day was it's like, I don't have to go back. <laughs> this is this is great. I don't have to go. Those poor bastards, but I don't have to go back. And I'm sitting there still sweating because of this, this process of getting my wrist reset was so dramatic and it was so invasive. Um, <laughs> but like suddenly like there was this magical silver lining of like <laughs> done. Thank God I got hit by this car. <laughs> I'm done. Oh, uh, it, it you know obviously once all the pain meds wore off. It still sucked, but but I didn't have to go to go to work and have it suck. <laughs> it was a different kind. It was of a suck. different kind of suck, which leads me to another broken bone story. I was working on another. This is sixteen or seventeen years ago. Man, this post sound stuff is dangerous. What well, the hell? It, it's it's you try and make the most of your free time, <laughs> and sometimes you make a little too much of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've had I've I'm in the middle of a pretty long break right now and admittedly I've made the most of it by sitting on my ass and getting caught up on television. Time to get out there and break some more bones, dude. Damn straight. <laughs> but I was I was working nights. We were double shifting and I had I had the night shift doing effects premixes on a show and I was out mountain biking and I mountain crashed and mountain broke my arm clean <laughs> in half. That one was yeah. This, this is the opposite kind of story because I dragged my carcass out of the mountains. A guy gave me a ride back to my truck. I drove myself to the ER, found out, oh, you've broken your humerus in half. Oh, crap. I called. I Very early cell phone days, I called work and said, I'm at the ER. I just found out I broke my arm. I'm not going to be in tonight. Someone's going to have to cover. This is like two hours before my shift's going to start. They found coverage. I found out later that the lady who was our scheduler at the time, I called my wife right after that, not to tell her, oh, crap, I'm so sorry this has happened, but to find out if I would be back into work the next day. Nice. Me being younger at that point in time and dumber, 
and not understanding how workman's comp and disability and all that kind of fun stuff works, thought, oh, and I didn't want to leave my anybody in a lurch, went in the very next day with a cast. And yeah, I, I did that entire, and this was very early on the show. It ended up being a seven day a week show working crazy hours. And I did that with a arm broken, literally. I, I broke, it didn't compound, but this, my humerus was snapped clean in half. And I had what was called radial nerve palsy. And this is before Pro Tools. This was still the Tascam day, so you could work with one hand. But with radial nerve palsy, you can't control your hand. My hand just hung there. Wow. So I did the entirety of this very large action movie with one hand. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and sitting there in a cast all day long. I couldn't tie my shoes. I wore sandals. They, they, they let me wear sandals because I literally could not bend over and tie my shoes. Well, now you can officially and literally say that you could work through a major motion picture action film with one hand tied behind your back. Exactly. Excellent. Well, given the technology of 2003. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's awesome. And I can't believe that uh, you've suffered so many injuries in your post-production career. Someone's got to do it. You know, if you if you keep your health up and you keep, you know, staying away from cars, I think you have a long career ahead of you. I got, I got, I got a future in this business. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming down, hanging out, chatting for a little bit. And Always. Giving the perspective of someone in that uh, higher level major motion picture realm. Man, I said it all. It all applies, man. $100 million, $100. The same basic tenets. They do apply. Perfect. Well, thank you again, and until next time. Word.